Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Good morning. morning. Would you take your Bibles and open it with me to Acts chapter 17? We have quite a journey ahead of us this morning. One conservative scholar and popular speaker in Europe named John Lennox has spent a lot of his life work in the book of Acts. And he said he's been studying the passage we're going to look at this morning for over 50 years. And as yet, he feels like to get to its depths. And we only have about 40 minutes. So this morning, if you would, would you stand with me as we read God's Word this morning? In a lot of ways, this passage is the climax. It's the highest peak in the book of Acts. Um, It seems to be what Paul is most known for when it comes to his speeches. And first, we'll get the context of that as we pick it up in verse 16, and we'll read through end of the chapter. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So Paul here is in Athens, Greece. Verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, this starts his speech. I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him am I proclaiming to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as, it, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I would like to argue that the next phrase that Paul says may be the most profound statement in the Bible. Here it is. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like the gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, These times of ignorance God overlooked. 
but now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has pointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus and the Areochabite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, would you open our minds? Would you move our hearts? Would you teach us from your word? Would you transform us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, first, I'd like to walk through the text just once again and try to bring some things to your attention, maybe ask some good questions that we will adventure to answer together this morning. In verse, six, uh, verse 16, Paul here is in Athens. He's waiting. Why is he there? You remember Pastor Shane's sermon last week. Uh, he has been ran out of Berea and Thessalonica, and there's a group of Jews who are after him. And you're going to find out in the next coming chapters, this group of Jews dislike Paul so much. At one time, they make a vow that they will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. I don't know. That's, that's some hatred right there, is it not? Uh, so this group is after him, so he goes and he gets away in secret to Athens. Now, this is Athens, Greece. Uh, 500 years before Paul arrives, Athens was known, um, or the time, was known as the Golden Age. When you think of Athens, you may think of its architecture. Um, it's known for that. Uh, 500 years before Paul arrived, it was the center of the world. And even at this point, when Paul arrives, it still is at some point. Uh, but in Athens, you have the best education in the world, the best philosophy in the world, the best um, architecture, the best government. Uh, a lot of people believe that democracy, the ideas were birthed here, that capitalism, the idea, so business-wise was birthed in Athens. Uh, it is the center of art and literature and playwrights. I mean, this is the cultural uh, mecca of the world. And even when Paul gets there, but it had already passed its golden age, if you will. But this is the city that Paul is at. Uh, and it says that he is provoked. Hmm. Now, this is interesting. This is the same word used in the Old Testament describing God. And it's when the Bible says in Exodus, and we'll go to it here in a little bit, where over and over it says God is a jealous God. This is the same word used here. Uh, this is the Greek word. There's the Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And this is the same Greek word used of God in the Septuagint as it is here. Um, what's that getting at? And I, we'll get there. So Paul here is provoked. He, and it means angered. Um, and he's angry. Uh, and when he sees the city given over to idols. When, you, when Paul, most scholars say, when you walk into any entrance into the city, there was these huge columns that you had to walk through. And on top of these columns was the head of a pagan god. So right when you enter the city of Athens, there is idolatry right at the start. And it's known for a city of hills. And all these hills inside Greece, on every hill was a temple to a pagan god. There's idolatry everywhere you look. Everywhere you walk around, there's idols everywhere you look. And Paul sees this. And as a Jew, the one thing you know is that you only, the first couple commandments have to deal with you worship only the one true God. So Paul's eyes, now that he has truly come to know the one true God through Jesus Christ, he, he is still not a fan of idolatry, of course. And he notices the whole city is given over to it. 
therefore. And uh, if you go through verse 17, as Pastor Shane talked about last week, this is his custom. He goes to the Jews in the synagogue, as usual. But then he goes to the marketplace. After he's run out probably of the synagogue and he speaks with the Gentile worship, he goes to the marketplace. We don't have anything in our culture quite like the marketplace back that was then that Paul would have went to. Maybe the closest thing may be social media. But in the marketplace would have been a few blocks in the city where all the business took place, all the education took place, where all the art was for sale, where all the government met. It was the center of the city where everything happened. And that's where Paul goes. He goes, very, that's where you got your news. Um, you know, they didn't have newspaper, believe it or not. They didn't, they didn't have uh, electricity 2,000 years ago. Uh, they didn't have all the modern things we have today. So the only way they could get the news, what was going on, heralds would come from people or from other parts of the world. They would come and they would stand and they would proclaim the truth. They were called the heralds and they would give the news or what the emperor wanted to say or what the governor wanted to say. They would pronounce that. So this is where Paul goes to the center of the city. And he encounters there in verse 18 certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. This is the only two schools of philosophy mentioned in the Bible. And Epicureans, um, just to make it sim in a uh, simplified way, but we're going to talk more about them. Um, they were hedonistic. Um, they kind of had this idea that you only live once, and so they were hedonistic. They sought pleasure in life. Um, they thought that was the end of all, and we'll see why, how they got that. Um, they pursued pleasures, and the gods were their examples for pursuing this pleasure. There were Stoic philosophers were the other group. Um, these were not materialistic polytheists as the Epicureans were. Um, they believed, they were pantheists in a way. They believed everything was God and God was everything, if that makes sense. Um, uh, like um, the um, Hinduism of today, they believe very similar. The Buddhist worldview of today, they believe that. They believe a wise person was one who realized that his or her connection was to this earth soul and that you could find peace there. Um, and because of that, if you found this peace, you could deal with the hardships and circumstances in life with an upper lip, if you would. They believe history was in a cycle. In other words, history wasn't going to a point. They believe it was just a cyclical, that there was peace and that there was chaos and then over and over again. So that's who Paul, and we're going to talk more about them in depth here in just a second, why Luke bring those, brings them to our attention. And here's what they say of Paul in verse 18. He's a babbler. This term means seed picker. Here's what they're saying. This is a, a, a word. This is a diss on Paul. He said uh, he's a seed picker. He's like a bird that flies all over to different yards and different gardens and picks seeds up here and here and puts everything together. He's a babbler. Um, he's a secondhand shopper. He goes to yard sales to buy things. He goes to the antique store. I hope that didn't offend anybody. I'm one of those folks, by the way. I love it. I can be a hoarder by nature. Anybody? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. Anyhow, that's, what they're, that's how they're looking at Paul. That's what they're saying about Paul here, uh, that he, he is someone who doesn't have any original or anything really to say. He's just a babbler. Um, in, in verse, the end of verse 18 is kind of funny. They don't understand Paul. Um, uh, they say he's teaching about foreign gods. Why? Apparently, Paul so emphasized the resurrection of Jesus that they think Paul is talking about two gods. They think he's talking about Jesus as a god and the resurrection as a god. They're confused about what he is saying, and they want to hear more. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This was an outdoor theater. 
Uh, this is where they had a council, much like the Sanhedrin that had Jesus crucified and Stephen that kind of run the Jewish culture in Jerusalem. They had a very similar um, council in Athens, and they would make judicial decisions. They would make business decisions, governmental. They were like senators, if you will. They would make decisions like that about the education and things going on in the city. Um, but they also were in charge of education. So they would hear all the philosophy. They would hear what was going on. And they wanted Paul. And this doesn't seem to be anything to do with a judiciary matter. Or Luke is very uh, upfront about telling us when somebody makes a ruling against Paul, if you will. And, but here he, he doesn't. So apparently he's brought, as the end of the verse says, to teach something new. For all the Athenians, they wanted to hear, what? What's the end of verse 21 say? Some new thing. Now, you, you kind of hear that, and you think, what a bunch of bums. All they did was sit around all day to hear something new? I'm glad we're not like that. Oh, but are we? How many of us just scroll looking for what? On our news feed. Right? How many of you get upset when you're looking on your news feed, on your social media, and your phone won't load or something like that, and it's the old stuff you've already seen from yesterday? How annoying is that? You've already seen it. <laughs> you want something what? That is new today. You know, uh, what uh, Miss uh, Whoever, what they ate for dinner yesterday, and uh, where they decided to, uh, you know, go on a walk yesterday, and you don't know. You want to know where they went on a walk today, don't you? And what they ate for dinner today, not just yesterday. Something new. I, I can remember um, when you used to be able to go, where they had newspapers, and you could buy them at the store. Anybody remember those days? Do they still have those? I'm not sure. You know, and you, you would go, and you could put your quarter in, or 50 cents, 75 cents, and you could open the newspaper thing. I ain't seen one of these in a long time, but you could open it up, and if there was yesterday's newspaper in it, well, if you were dishonest, you could grab all of them, couldn't you? <laughs> you could just take all of them. And nobody would care. Why? Because yesterday's news is its not worth anything, is it? No, we got to look at Fox and all the other news outlets we have to let us know what is new today. And the same was then as well. Uh, and so here, here Paul is to give them something new. And so Paul stands up, and right off the bat in verse 20, uh, 22 he points that they are very and I can imagine him saying this in a very sweet gentle tone I can tell that you are religious These people seem to be seeking God don't they? Augustine uh, made a very good distinction. I think is worth mentioning um, We would say that people are really seeking God without him drawing them because it seems that men are very religious aren't they? But Augustine said a distinction that should be made, made is a religious people. Uh, people always seek religion. And why is that? Well, because they want the benefits that God can bring, Augustine said, and not God himself. And so here, these people are religious. They, they worship hundreds of God, thousands of God. And he says there's even an altar known uh, that Paul finds, he brings up in verse 23, to the unknown God. The legend had it that uh, years before Paul arrived on the scene that the, there was a priest to the uh, god Zeus, and he took a, um, a bunch of sheep, and he brought them up to Mars Hill, where Paul was, the Areopagus, and he let them go. And as these sheep went, every time they laid down, they would make a mark. And if they could think of a god to be worshipped there, they would make an inscription to a god there. But if they couldn't think of a god, they would just say, ah, oh, well, the unknown god. Every time a sheep got up. I mean, that's how many gods there were. Every time a sheep laid down, they would make another god. If they couldn't come up with one, they would know the unknown god. And Paul knows about this legend, whether it's true or not. And he mentions it because he comes across one of these altars that says that. 
and uh, verse 24, he, he points and he says, the one who made everything. He was the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Uh, if you can imagine, here Paul is in this outdoor theater preaching and he's teaching to this council. There's all hundreds there in Athens listening to him. And on one side, if you were to look this up on a map or, or find pictures of what it would have looked like then and even today, to his right hand was a, on a hill beside him was a temple to uh, Venus, the sex god, right there. And on his left hand was a god to an, a temple to another god. So you can see Paul's teaching and he's saying, the god I'm telling you about is not like the god worshiped there or the god worshiped there he does not dwell in temples made by human hands like what you have right here I like what one preacher said he said you can tear down the steeples but you can't tear down the stars that's the God Paul was talking about not the one who needs anything from men Paul says actually you got it messed up it's the opposite we're the one who live and breathe and move from him not the other way around as these idols do and so he, he goes on and on. And I want, I want to point something out in verse 27 that I come again. Have you ever heard of um, the question, maybe an atheist or maybe a good Christian will ask, and I think it is a good question that we should wrestle with. What about the innocent person who lives on an island who never hears about Jesus? Will they go to heaven or hell if they die without Jesus or out hearing about Jesus? Have you ever heard that question? Maybe not. Anybody heard of that question before? Yeah, a bunch of you. Yeah. Well, how do you answer that question? That's quite a difficult question to answer, isn't it? But let's read verse 27 and see what it has to give to that question. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, in verse um, 26. And he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. Why did he do that? In other words, there's not one person who lives in a place that God did not predestine or preordain or preappoint for them to live. Why? Verse 27. So that they may seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Yeah. That's an interesting answer to that question. In um, verse 28, as I said, I believe that is the most profound, one of the most profound verses in the Bible. And we'll get to more why, because of the questions that these philosophers had really ceased to wrestle with. And then he goes on in verse 30, I think another intriguing question to ask is, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked. Does that mean that before Jesus, that God just forgive everybody, that everybody was saved before Jesus? No. That's not what Paul talks about here. And by the way, this is not Paul's full sermon. Most people, uh, most scholars know that when Paul stood before the Areopagus, most like Socrates and Plato's who stood there before him years and years before would speak for two to three hours. We probably just have the highlights here. We have Paul's outline of his sermon. He probably preached for two or three hours. But what does he mean by that? In times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. I think what Paul is simply saying is that in, in times before Christ, Paul, God did not bring judgment just then. But judgment did come for those who did not come to the one true God and have faith in God. Paul is saying, but now, if you don't believe in Christ right now and repent, the wrath of God is upon you and is coming upon you right now. John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, is even John brings that out more. I want to make a couple observations from, from this text this morning. I hope you can stay with me. I believe, why did Luke bring this? Why does he point this out? Why is this the climax? I want to point out two things in the text this morning and then some subpoints under those. One, I think Paul, you know, the Acts is brought up and in, broken up into really about two people. The first part is about Peter. The second part is mostly about Paul. 
And here, Paul, I think, is at his best. And I think we need to learn some lessons from the way that Paul does evangelism here. So I think there's some lessons to be learned from Paul. And secondly, how great is this sermon? I mean, you could, we could just, all of us, go home and study it for the next year and just get so much out of it. So I want to point out some lessons that we can learn from his sermon as well. And firstly, uh, I want us to see about the person of Paul. I want us to see the consistency that Paul has, the consistency to his mission um, imagine Paul. Just think for a minute. Paul has been run out of what? Six or seven cities now? I mean, he's been stoned. He's been jailed. He's been left for dead. I mean, the man has went through a hard time for Jesus. He's been persecuted over and over again. I mean, if I had some advice to give Paul, I'd say, Paul, you're in Athens. Nobody knows you're there. Why don't you go kick your feet up, find a cup of coffee, and just sleep for a week or two, man. You need some rest. But Paul doesn't stay down one day, does he? I mean, he is out. He doesn't have time to do that, does he? Paul is on mission. You know, we look at, uh, we outline sometimes the book of Acts, and there's nothing wrong with saying this, but we outline Paul by saying he has uh, two or three missionary journeys. But I think that kind of language would be foreign to Paul. You know, uh, last week I got back and I told you about the mission trip we went on to New Orleans. I think that kind of language would be foreign to Paul. You went on a mission trip? What does that mean? The way Paul saw it, his life was a mission. He was on mission every day of his life. Um, Acts 20, verse 24, he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me, only to aim, my only aim is to finish the race, complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul says, my life isn't worth nothing. I've got one mission in this life, and that is to testify to the good news of the grace of God. I, as uh, David would, Pastor David would go on um, vacations and stuff, one thing I could I always look forward to is when David would get back, just to be asking him, man, who'd you, who'd you get, how did, I want to hear about how he shared the gospel. Because every time there would be multiple stories how David and Miss Donna got to share the gospel with people on vacation. And I think about it, it, it you know, the preacher, you get away, man, it's time to throw your feet up. Time to get on the beach. Don't worry about sharing the gospel or none of that stuff. We got, <laughs> I got to rest. No, they, no, we're on mission all the time. No matter where we are, God has sent us on mission every day of our life to do what? To testify to the good news of God's grace. See, Paul understood the statement, we only have one life to win the victories. We have all eternity to celebrate it. You know the saying, there's only uh, a life that will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Do you know there's a couple things that won't be in heaven, and one of them is evangelism. There won't be no evangelism in heaven. We only have one life to win the victories, to win people to Jesus Christ. Only one life. Paul wasn't about to waste it, was he? So first, Paul's consistency uh, into the mission here, we see. And then Paul's attitude. Uh, this, this has helped me so much, and I hope this will help you. Uh, if you looked at Paul in verse 17, we point out that he was provoked. Uh, and, I, and I point out to you, this was the same word used of God in the Old Testament, translated as jealousy. Exodus 34, verse 14, God said this to his people, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. That just doesn't sit right with when we read that. God is jealous? Does that sit right with you? I mean, I think of jealousy. I think of sin. Wait, God's not sinful. This doesn't make sense. How can God be jealous? You know why that doesn't sit right with me or sit right maybe with some of you? It's because, here's the understatement of the century. We don't understand love in our culture. We don't understand love. We think the opposite of love is anger. That's what we think. But truly, the opposite of love is indifference. It's indifference. 
Um, I, I remember here, um, I, I just want to apologize ahead of time. <laughs> Everything I could think of in application, I don't know why, I had to do against socialism and communism this morning. So I just woke up loving capitalism and freedom and all that kind of stuff. So I, I just apologize ahead of time. But when we were in New Orleans, we got to go to uh, this Vietnamese uh, area and, and go door to door and try to share the gospel and attempt. And the guy who led us was a Vietnamese pastor in that area. He, he said to us, he said, I'm, I'm glad y'all aren't wearing red and gold. We're like, wow, what's up with that? He's like, that represents communism, these people around here, and they'll fight you, they'll kill you. They do not like communism. Why? Because they were kids when they fled from communism in Vietnam, and they see it here, and they don't want nothing to do with it. They don't play. He said, they don't play about that. They don't play. They hate it. They're angry against it. Now, if we think, well, they, you know, we think love is, is indifference, you know, that, that they should just be, in, no, they're angry against it. Why? Because they love freedom. What is God saying? I love my people. They were created to worship me. They will find their true satisfaction in me. And if they're worshiping other idols, I'm angry about that because I love them. And I'm a jealous God. I'm angry about that. So here, Paul is he's angry. And friend, um, th this is the most practical thing I can think of in evangelism. Uh, sometimes we're so practical or impractical, but this is so practical. Uh, think about it. The problem with many of us in evangelism is not that we don't know what to say or we don't know how to say it or we, we, you know, we're scared of something. Our biggest problem is we have a heart problem. We don't love enough. We're not angry enough. Here's what Paul, he walks in and he loves God so much and he loves those people so much that he is angry. One, that God is not worshipped in this city, but and Jesus is not proclaimed in this city, but all these pagan idols are worshipped in this city. He's mad about that because he loves God he wants him, to, but he loves these people too, and he sees where they're headed. He sees the hell that they're doomed for, and he loves them enough to share the gospel with them. So one, you see his, you see that he is provoked, but you also see his compassion. He is compassionate. You see the way that he starts to talk. You know, these people are calling him a babbler. You're talking about foreign gods. I mean, they're disrespecting him left and right, but he doesn't get angry in the text. Um, he, he just shows compassion. He starts off very gentle. Now, he's about to drop the A-bomb on him with what he says. However, he is very gentle with the way that he does it. He's loving with the way that he does it. Um, I hope you see the balance in that. Because if, if you don't have the anger and the, that kind of love for God and for people, that when you see people not worshiping God and you see people live you know, lives that are against God, if you don't love God enough and that doesn't make you angry, you'll just be a coward and you won't share with them. But at the same time, if all you have is this anger and you just have this, you know, uh, well, you'll be obnoxious when you do try to talk to them. But do you see the balance there? That you love them so much that you're angered and that fuels you to be, um, you know, courageous and not a coward to share. But at the same time, when you share, you love the people and you're compassionate because you're fighting not against them but for them. You see the balance in that. Paul has that kind of attitude. Well, and here's the best illustration or the best where you see these two, this kind of love come together. It's at the cross of Jesus. Think about this. At the cross, it is God. In in um, small group this morning, you're in First John chapter two. You're talking about the propitiation that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It means that the wrath of God is satisfied upon. What do you have at the cross? You have the wrath of God. You have the anger of God poured out. But who does He pour it out on? His Son, because He loves us so much, He's willing to pour out His wrath on His Son so He doesn't lose His people. Do you see where, how that meets there at the cross? Compassion and, and caring, but also wrath and anger? 
And we're, we've got to have the same kind of attitude. You see Paul's attitude. I've got to go quickly. We've got much to say this morning. You see Paul's skill. Um, here in the text, in verse 17, he goes to the synagogues, and he talks with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. And uh, at the end of the verse, he's at the marketplace talking to pagans and intellectuals who wouldn't know the Old Testament if you hit them in the face with it. <laughs> I mean, how versatile is Paul? You've got to love his versatility. Paul's able to speak to a Jewish audience and also an intellectual audience who is biblically illiterate. Um, you have to think about it. The presentations were different for each. Think about it. We have plenty of record in the rest of Acts, and we've been studying that, how Paul spoke when he got in the synagogue. It was different than how he spoke here. There was differences and there were similarities. Um, here's what I'm trying to say. Paul was skillful in sharing the gospel. Paul did not have a canned presentation. He didn't say, I got four things to tell you. Okay, bye, have a good day. No, he doesn't. I, every evangelistic training that I've been a part of here from, from Pastor David and, Pastor, and Craig Fisher, here's what I hear about every time we do it. This is not a one-for-all training here. This is not a canned thing that you can use all the time, but it is a tool in your toolbox for sharing the gospel. Do you see that? Because what does it depend upon? It depends upon who you're talking to. Think about it. The way you share the gospel with an 80-year-old may be different than the way that you get into a conversation with an 18-year-old. For an 80-year-old, you may want to bring up Mayberry <laughs> to get into that conversation, right? But for an 18-year-old, you may want to bring up something that really just degenerates the culture more than anything else TikTok. you know i mean you just might want to talk about that you know so you, it depends on how you who you're talking to with how you bridge to start that conversation do you see when paul was talking to the jewish people he didn't have to start about the worldview and how they saw the world because they saw it the same but he could go to the scriptures because they both agreed on the scriptures but you see with paul he's able to go to the uh, marketplace and talk to them about philosophy because he and, and by the way Paul loved them enough. He was so skillful that, one, he knew the gospel inside and out. And he could share it at the drop of a hat any way he wanted to. But at the same time, he knew the people he was talking to. He loved the people he was talking to enough to know about the legends, the myths of their culture, about the guy, the, the priest of Zeus who spread the sheep out. I mean, he knew that legend. He knew about their poetry. He knew about their literature. Their he knew about all that. Why? Because he loved them enough to study it. So there's differences in the presentations, but there's also similarities. You know what the similarities are? Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus. He gets to Jesus and he gets to the resurrection of Christ. And he makes them make a decision. He doesn't make them make a decision, but he puts them at a point of decision. Paul became all things to all people by first growing in the gospel and second by understanding the culture and the people that he was talking to. So you see Paul's skill. And you and I, uh, let me just ask you, uh, going through COVID, where are you at with your personal mission that God has called you to as part of this church? Where are you at? Have you fallen away on consistency? It's so easy in our culture, especially with the pandemic we come out of, to get our minds focused on so many different things. I mean, you just watch a commercial that is so annoying, it comes up on YouTube, right in the middle of your video that you're watching, you know, and there, oh, I need to be about something else. Oh, Pelotron on the Olympics, I need to get in shape. Oh, I mean, you just get, you know, oh, one of those food services. You, can, you I mean, just every different thing can grab your attention. And, and going through the pandemic, we're trying to survive, right? But have you got away from the mission that God has called you to? Have you stopped being consistent to that? Or have you stopped work on becoming skillful and, and seeking to know the people that you're around well enough to start gospel conversations? Are you seeking to grow in the gospel daily to be uh, motivated and in relation with Jesus to do that, Christian? Where are you at with that? 
So you have Paul's balance, you have Paul's skill. Uh, oh, lastly, let me talk quickly about Paul's balance that we see here. I want to say, if you look at his uh, whole sermon, I would make an, um, a point. The evangelism of Paul did not dilute the theology of God. The whole narrative, this whole narrative in his sermon, it shines that Paul has the heart of an evangelist, but he also has the mind of a theologian. It's hard to escape today. When we went to our convention, it was hard to escape this accusation that's going on in evangelical culture today. And, and here's the accusation. If you care about theology, then you don't care about evangelism. It's not, is it? But here's the also. If you care about evangelism, then you don't care about theology. God in heaven, tell me why it has to be one or the other. Look at Paul. Look at Paul here. Paul is so in love with God and so loves people that he is moved and provoked uh, to evangelize. But he does not compromise on his theology. He doesn't. You know, and I heard so much chatter. I've read so much in the last couple of months. I honestly wasted so much time hearing people say, if you care about this kind of ideology or philosophy and speaking out against whatever it is, then you don't really care about people in the world. Help me. I, I, I just thought about this. What if Paul, this is sarcasm, okay? <laughs> just to make it clear. What if Paul didn't care about the Judaizers? Man, you know, all the, all, all the time he could have saved, all the things Paul couldn't have done if he wouldn't have been worried about people messing up the theology of the gospel. I mean, half of his letters he could have used for something else. Amen. No, Paul was concerned about people tinkering with the truth of the gospel he was concerned about having right theology and it was because he cared about people and he cared about god and and you think about how this works as well if you care if you really do care so much about theology if that actually it can be true that you don't care about theology then you'll be tempted to um compromise on the truth of the gospel I've heard this over and over again. Uh, well, you got to be careful. You can't talk out about that heresy or you can't call that wrong because, I mean, you might hurt people and people might not quit listening. Tell that to Paul. Uh, Paul, he called Peter out. Peter, you're wrong. Paul, that didn't compute for Paul and it shouldn't compute for us today not to call out heresy where we see it, where it goes against the Bible. We cannot, because if we compromise the gospel, what do we have to win people to? What, what? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And if we compromise on the gospel, Martin Luther comes to the Catholic Church and says, I got 95 reasons that you've compromised unto the gospel. Right. While we're here today, we're protesting hey. the Catholic Church. <laughs> Still. At the same time, if you have a theology and you're so intellectual, and if you have such a theology that you, you are puffed up with your knowledge, that you know more than other people, and that makes you argumentative or makes you want to debate, you've not got the theology that's in the Bible. Uh, if you've got this kind of intellectual supremacy above people, that you feel like you know so much more of that word right there than other people, and that just makes you so much better than them, you have not come close. You don't have a right theology. Because when Paul said in Romans 1 again, when he said, I've, I've come to the knowledge of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. Here's what it said. I, he said, I'm in debt to the barbarians and to the Greeks. What do you mean in debt? I, God showed me this. I'm a nobody that he showed this to me. I did not deserve it. I was killing Christians. I was putting them in prison. But he showed me the gospel. He saved me. I'm indebted to everybody who doesn't know this. I got the cure or something better than cancer. How can I not share it to those who don't know it? 
that's right theology. So you see the balance of Paul. All right, next, and, and let's move. Um, next, I want to point out some lessons from the sermon of Paul, some observations. One, and I know we're, we're getting stuck in verses 16, 17, 18, but we'll move out of there quickly. Uh, the gospel was brought to the marketplace. And this may sound like a, a trivial thing, but it's not. Um, because in our, in our culture, we're told that we cannot talk about two things. What are those two things we can't talk about? Politics and religion. Uh, me and Andrew Ferguson of our college and career, I wasn't going to name him, but sorry. Uh, we, were, we were in a situation, we were talking to a little rougher crowd, and um, we were trying to have a gospel conversation. We got to talking to them and trying to bring up the gospel of Jesus, and, and we, I don't remember what we said, but one guy said, now listen, we can talk about anything but politics and religion. And then I said, well, why not? Why, why do we have to stay silent on those things? Why can't we just have a good conversation and not get heated about it? And he said, all right, all right. Well, we can talk about politics and religion, but I ain't talking about it with no Baptists. Y'all ain't Baptists, are you? I thought, oh. <laughs> Say now. <laughs> Next question. Y'all ever done any time in jail? I don't know where this was going. I just didn't know where after that question. But anyhow, um, why is that? What, what, why do people say you can't talk about politics and religion? What do they say? Separation of church and state. Have we, if we have taken anything out of context in our day, it is that saying. Thomas Jefferson coined that saying in a letter defending Baptists uh, in the early Virginia colony who had an established um, Church of England. They were imprisoning and persecuting Baptists for baptizing people, not babies. They, they were baptizing believers, and they were preaching uh, the Bible. And so they would imprison them, persecute them. And Thomas Jefferson's right and saying, this, you can't do this. The, the, as a colony, as a government, we should not have an established church. Here's what separation of church and state actually means and what it meant then. I know we're living in a culture where we redefine everything and don't care about what it actually means, but this, just for fact, let's just talk about what it does actually mean or what it meant. Separation of church and state means that the government cannot or should not have an established church and enforce the religion or enforce people to come to church or be a part of a church. Because that's, by the way, before America, that's how all governments work before then pretty much, right? And he said, we cannot force that among people. Well, then people say, well, well, you cannot legislate morality. You ever heard that? And there's truth in that, and there's truth in that and this. You cannot, legislation will not change anybody's heart. It won't transform them. However, all legislation is somebody's morality. And here's, here's my point. We as Christians believe that this Bible came from God. It is inspired by God. Proverbs 1 says wisdom should be shouted in the streets. We believe that we have the wisdom that the world needs, the principles, the commandments of God. And we believe they're the best thing coming and going. And they have a place in the marketplace. They have a place in the government. Here's what I'm trying to say. Here's the point. I know I went around to make it, but Christianity is personal, but it is not private. The gospel of Jesus Christ should not be private. Here's the lie of paganism, the lie that was then and the lie this was now. you got all these gods that they're worshiping, and every city had a different god of their city. Well, you can't tell those in Rome what to do. They got their god. You can't tell those in Thessalonica what to do. They got their god. And do you, did, you, did you hear what Pastor Shane said last week? I thought it was such a great point. In, in uh, verse 7 of Acts 17, they were making these allegations against Paul and his Jason and Timothy and Silas, and they said, 
uh, these guys are going against Caesar saying that there's another king. I can imagine Paul saying, we're not saying that. There's not another king. There's only one king. He's the king of kings. Do you remember what Jesus said when he's before Pilate? Pilate said, Jesus, don't you know I have the authority to have you killed? He said, the only authority you have is that which my father gave you. Do you see what Paul says? I'd taken this to the marketplace because the God I'm talking about is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He belongs in the center of the culture. He belongs in the marketplace. This God we're worshiping and talking about cannot be private because we're not just talking about the God of Maysville. We're talking about the King of kings. Jesus says, all power in heaven and in earth has been given to me. So whatever sphere that you're in, sir, ma'am, education, work, college, workplace, you name it, whatever, family, I'm telling you, what a government, whatever you're a part of, somebody says the gospel can't be here. That's not true. That's not separation of church and state. That is squashing freedom of religion and speech is what that is. There is a place for the gospel in every sector in this society. And we can't be silent because the God we worship is not just one God. He is the God. That's all I got to say about that. But here's the challenge. We here at Maysville are committed to evangelism. We're committed. We do mass evangelism. We do where we get as many people as we can to share the gospel with. We're not going to stop doing that. We'll share the gospel every opportunity we have. But looking back at this past year, what we weren't able to do was to have mass evangelism opportunities. And I just want to ask you, Christian, member at Maysville, Last year, did you take the gospel to the marketplace? Or did you buy the lie of our culture that says you can't? And as we sung about, did fear grip you? The gospel we have is that which the world needs. The world out there is in darkness, is dying, and it is dead. And we have been called as, as people of the light to go and shine that light into a dark world. You are, we are God's plan to share the gospel in Northeast Georgia. We need some Isaiahs to stand up and say, here am I, Lord, send me. Next, uh, I want to see that the gospel belongs in the marketplace. Secondly, it is superior to all the other religions and worldviews. We have to move quickly here. So he, he comes upon these Epicureans and these um, Stoics in verse 18. And Luke does not mention their differences. And a lot of people make a lot of means about their differences. But Luke doesn't, so I don't think that's the point. I think the point is their similarities. Just a little history very quickly. They had dealt with some philo uh, philosophical questions for years, for, um, I mean, hundreds of years. This is the home of Plato, of Socrates, of Aristotle, and they all dealt with the same questions. Question that they held was, we live in a world that they observed. One, they thought the world was knowable. They said, we, everything seems to be the same in this world. Like, there's things that we can know. This seems to be a world of cosmos not chaos but how can we know what makes sense of our knowing what we find is that there's diversity there's trees there's mountain there's animals there's different animals there's humans some of them look different I mean some I mean there's all kind of differences in this world but there's got to be something that unifies it it's got to come from somewhere something had to give life to all this um, another question you know everything they saw was changing though um, you ever, the, the quote that you hear, you never step in the same river 
twice. You've heard that before. That come from all of their philosophy. And know what they say? If you step in a river, you step back in a river, well, everything's changed, ain't it? If you do it just another second. The river's changed. The water's gone. The sand underneath or the rocks have changed. You've changed. You're not the same person you were a second ago. The air you were breathing one second ago is not the same. And so there's, they, they noticed everything in this world was changing. But they thought there had to be something that was unchanging. There had to be something that had um, something that didn't have potential. You and I have potential, right? We have some of us unrealized potential. We all do as we're changing. But they said there's got to be something that started this, gave life to this, th that gave life to this diversity. There's got to be some kind of unity. But they, hundreds of years, they never come up with a plausible answer. They never come up with anything that made sense. And so what they did, that gave way to skepticism. In other words, well, we can't know ultimate reality, where all this comes from, how we get here. How, we can't really know that. So let's just try to figure out how to make it. Figure out how to smile and be happy. You know, let's figure out how to have peace in this world. The Stoics said you just got to realize we're all connected to the world force that they called the Logos, which in John 1, in the beginning was the Logos, John said, which was Jesus. You, you see, that's the, how they thought. Well, and then the Stoic, um, the Epicureans thought, well, you know, we just need to live it up. <laughs> and life is short. We just need to have pleasure and enjoy it. So, and they had schools of business that they're just trying to figure everything out. They're just trying to figure out how to make it. Now, that was then. Let's think about our world today. Uh, Richard Dawkins said science is dead. What he meant by that is in our world today, in our culture, science gives us all the answers to life. In fact, we're told that the one scientific fact that we can know today is that from, from nothing came everything. That is the scientific fact that our culture has bought today. From nothing came all that we see and experience today. Well, think about it. That's not neither science nor fact, is it? Science has told us multiple things. It said mathematics created the world. Well, I'm not too much of a thinking man, but mathematics can do nothing. Think about it for just a second. A mathematic equation can't do anything. People have to do things. The law of gravity doesn't hold anything down. Gravity holds it down. Do you see what I'm saying? It, um, in other words, the law of motion doesn't give motion. People have to give motion. If me and Buzzer were playing a game of pool, which we should, if we're playing a game of pool, and we're saying we're just going to leave this up to the law of motion. We're just going to sit here and watch. That's going to be a pretty boring game. It'd be a pretty boring game if we played anyways, I suppose. What's the point? We have to do something. Somebody had to do something to start this. But no, science tells us that from nothing came everything. Today we are left with two options for how we got here. Nothing or God. Think about, now, nothing is quite a deep subject. <laughs> nothing means not a thing. So we're told that not a thing got us where we are today. Not a thing. Or God. Which one is more plausible? And here's the problem with idolatry when we forsake God. The problem is not that we'll worship something else. The problem is we will worship everything else. Why there's idols everywhere. That's where the culture, and, and, and he steps in, and here's what he says. Um, He says right here in verse 24. Here's his answer to all the questions that they have quit asking because they said you can't know them. Verse 24, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Do you see that? The answer is God created it. God made it. What you're looking for, the answers you have ceased to look for, the questions you still won't answer, the answer is God. 
God is the answer. And this is the superior answer, I would argue, for today. And then they ask, what kept the world going? The Stoics believed that the Logos, this universal force, kept the world going. And the Epicureans believed that it was already determined. That nature in itself was already determined. People ask us as Christians a lot, well, you believe God's ordained everything, so what about free will? That's not the question to the Christian today. That question is posed to the atheist today who believes that the world is already determined by DNA and RNA. Nature already has determined it all. So my question to them is to the materialistic and the existentialists, sir, where is free will? There has to be more. We know we make choices and we have a, uh, God has given us or we, that we make choices every day. But you said everything is already determined. Richard, Richard Dawkins, the leading uh, atheist of our day, said uh, free will is an illusion. Why? Nature has already determined everything that will be. No, Paul's answer is here, I believe the most profound. In him we live and move and have our being. He is the one who keeps gravity working. He's the one that keeps the world and gives breath to our lungs. He is the one that holds everything together, that keeps everything moving. Hebrews 1, 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact rep representation of being, sustaining all things by the powerful, by the power of his word. Uh, oh, there's so much to say here, but we, we, we must move on. I must close. Uh, and there's just, I wish we had another hour. Y'all, can y'all hang for another hour? We can't. They're waiting on us out there. <laughs> y'all are like, no, please get us out of here. Uh, it's okay, but let me say one last thing. The exclusivity of the gospel. The resurrection of Christ warrants a response from mankind. Let me repeat something I said earlier. Though Paul started his conversation and talks at different places depending on the crowd and brought us various issues to connect with the crowd, he always ended at the same place, the resurrection of Jesus and the judgment to come. The resurrection of Christ moves people to make a decision about Jesus. Do you see why? Do you see why the resurrection of Christ makes people make a decision? Think about it. People say, I mean, we talked to, we've talked to hundreds of college kids. Well, we believe Jesus is a good teacher. What did he teach? He taught that he would resurrect from the dead. He can't be a good teacher then if he didn't, if he taught something false, if he didn't raise from the dead. Well, we believe Jesus is a prophet, one of the prophets. Well, he prophesied that he would die and he would raise again on the third day. But if he didn't do it, he's a false prophet. He's not a good prophet. We believe Jesus is a good moral teacher. Well, he taught that he would die and he would he'd raise again. I, last time I checked, liars are not good moral teachers. Good moral people. The resurrection moves people. Uh, let me end with a conversation that we were able to have um, when we were in New Orleans, there was a sweet lady that managed the restaurant that we were eating at, and she got to talking to us, and she, she told us that she believed in, uh, that all religions really led to the same place. Do you see what Paul's saying here? No. It, do you see how Paul, here's all these intellectuals who believe in all these different gods, a different thing, and here's Paul with his belief in one God, one Savior, one gospel, Lord of heaven and earth. And he brings them, he connects them, because what he says is the God I'm talking about is the God who created you and sustained you and gave you a chance to repent and follow him. And I asked, told that lady, she said, right, she kind of made the statement like, right, I mean, they all lead pretty much to the same place. I was like, oh, there's a problem with that. And she was very sweet. We had a great conversation. We just got to share it with her. The resurrection of Jesus does set it all apart. Because if you, you, and people want to argue about creation and all those things, and those are great 
discussions to have that we shouldn't ignore. However, we can get people to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Think through me here. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, we can figure all that out. But you've, if that really happened, you've got to make a decision about that. Either it did or it didn't. Either he is a liar and a lunatic or he's Lord because he raised from the dead. And I just told her, you, you, he, he, he taught. If he raised from the dead, you've got to deal with what he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We live in a culture today where everybody gets a trophy, don't we? We really do. We live in a culture, honestly, in a lot of schools, you can't even fail nobody anymore. I got failed a couple times. Uh, what happened to that when I was in school? Uh, but we live in that culture where everybody has to have equal outcome. Now, we believe in equality, equal opportunity, that we shouldn't show partiality. We believe that. We hold to that because our God holds to that. But this God of this Bible teaches that there will not be an equal outcome when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to eternity. Paul says he gives everyone, all people, an opportunity to repent. You have that opportunity today. And it's simple as this. The Bible says if you, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to come to a saving knowledge of God, if you want what your heart really longs for, what you were created for, then you must repent of your sins. You must have an attitude that says, I'm going to believe what God believes about sin and says about sin, and I'm going to turn from that. And I'm going to turn to God who sent his only son on the cross to die in my place, who poured his wrath out upon his own son, the wrath that I deserve, and three days later he conquered the grave. And I believe that story is not just a bedtime story, but it is truth. And I believe he raised from the dead, and I confess him as Lord of my life. The Bible says if you do that, you can be saved. The Bible says he'll save you today. I want to ask you. I've, I've talked to the Christians to start with, and now I'm talking to the non-Christians. Maybe you've wrestled with that for a long time. Some people said, Paul, I want to hear more later. You've been hearing more for a long time. Maybe it's time to make a decision today. Quit wasting your life. I heard the gospel for two, three years. I just thought, ah, tomorrow, next week, I'll do it. I'll accept it. I was, I was in turmoil for two years. I wasted my life of not, because of not surrendering to the gospel. What? Don't waste any more time. Come to the best thing in this world. Come, come and thirst no more. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.